0: You're listening to Lanyap, a weekly digest of news, personal finance, brotherly banter, and whatever else is on our minds from Stokes Family Office.
1: This is Lanyap Podcast with Greg and Doug Stokes, Stokes Family Office. Before we jump in immediately to start discussing what we have planned for today, I want to let everybody know I just had my third baby, a uh, little girl, to join our two older boys. Uh, her name's Sally, and my wife's doing great. The baby's doing great, and we're all pumped. So we got another family member to the Stokes family. So anyway, with that, I'm going to jump in, and we like to lead these podcasts off with either an article or a quip that we find interesting from the internet over the past week. And this one's from Ken Fisher on Twitter, and this is related to what's expected to be a rate hiking cycle through 2022. And what Ken says is this, fed up with, in quotations, don't fight the Fed. Visuals like this one bred the concept, but it's false. Look at two, three, four, and see it's a long way to the top if you wanna rock a bull with rate hikes. And what he's saying is basically there's a narrative out there that as soon as the Federal Reserve goes into a rate hiking cycle, which we're entering now, that spells doom for markets. What he then shows is showing stats that should seriously dissuade the masses now believing 22 rate hikes should kill stocks. Ridiculous notion. Stocks may or may not thrive, but it won't be from rate hikes. I remain bullish seeing double digits by year end. That's his words, not ours. But really what he does here is then shows a picture And the picture is about 15 different market periods going back to 1933. And each one of those periods is a rate hiking cycle. And what it shows is one in 1933, the last one in 2015, the number of years remaining from the beginning of the rate hiking cycle until the end of the bull market. And on average, a rate hike beginning to end in terms of end of the bull market is around 3.3 years. The average return for the S&P 500 through a rate hiking cycle 1925 to present is 8.6% per year. The calendar returns by number of rate hikes in a given year going from zero rate hikes in a given year to eight. And for the interest of disclosure, it's anticipated that the Federal Reserve will do anywhere between two and four rate hikes this year. It basically shows that there's no real correlation between raising of interest rates by the Federal Reserve and average calendar year return. And in years where there were three and four rate hikes, the average year return was 15.6% and 24.5% respectively. Bottom line is the narrative suggests that rate hiking is doom and gloom for stocks. Ken Fisher comes back and says, not
2: so fast. What do you think, Greg? I think like what Ken Fisher said at the outset was, who knows whether stocks are going to thrive or not this year. But this is certainly, if you look back at history, the Fed raising rates actually has been a positive indicator for stocks. And it's really difficult to derail a bull market and slow down inflation by raising rates 25 or 50 basis points. And I think that that what Ken Fisher is pointing to makes a lot of sense in that regards.
1: Yeah. I think it's just, there is no really rule of thumb in markets. Like If you think about it, do you really think that the collective knowledge of the millions and millions of investors that are participating in markets are not aware that we're in a rate-hiking cycle now, or at least entering one? And the S&P 500, this is is January 6th, is basically like a percent off of its all-time high. Now, some of the growth names have been hit, but There's just so much going on in markets beyond just one of these particular narratives that drives prices. And so just as a thinking intuitively, if liquidity is being taken out of the system or lending is being curbed by raising of interest rates, intuitively, I would say that that would be detrimental to stocks, but you can't just put one of those things in the vacuum and say... Oh, rate hikes equals negative returns for stocks. There's just so much going on that, that doesn't make logical
2: sense that one single bullet point is a driver for market returns. but Right. And typically what happens is the Fed raises rates when it looks like the economy is booming. And so it would, the natural conclusion would be what has taken place in history. But again, nobody knows, obviously. And you're right. There's tons of different factors that go into place in terms of what market returns will result over any given period, and this is just one of them. Doug, did you see the tweet by Morgan Housel? Two worlds. Home prices balloon, but mortgage payments as a percent of income are the lowest level in 40-plus years. If you can afford a down payment and win a bid, you're in the best spot in a generation. If not, it just gets tougher and tougher. Yeah, that's a difficult one
1: for me because I think the, well, people talk about the level of debt, the absolute level of debt, and they don't realize that, I think somebody else posted this too, but basically that individuals have never been in a better spot in terms of net worth because as that debt has increased, the value of the assets have increased even more and interest rates have declined so much. So basically what you're saying is that the cost of that debt is at the lowest point in history. And so- Yeah, people are in great spot. The problem is that the down payment is so great that only a certain number of people can really afford to buy a house. And I think that that's a a broader political issue related to inequality than anything.
2: If you look back at, and this is something that that resonates with a lot of people that we work with that are in their 50s and 60s, but obviously the rates on mortgages were much higher back then. But like, for example, in the early 90s, the percentage of mortgage debt service to disposable income was in the 6% range. And now it's about 3% of mortgage debt to one's disposable income. So it's about, even though prices are a lot higher, obviously, and they're at all time highs, home prices, it's definitely cheaper relative to people's income. That's something that's, that definitely goes against the narrative that home prices are ex- increasing, et cetera, because as a percentage of your income, it's never been cheaper to maintain a mortgage essentially.
1: Yeah. The question then
2: becomes what happens if interest rates rise? A lot of
1: these mortgages are long-term fixed rate instruments and a lot of refinancing. If you've at industry data over the last couple of years related to refinances, I mean, this is a complete guess, but I'm assuming a lot of this low interest rate is locked over a long period of time. But, but I'd be interested to see what happens, how much the US economy can sustain a increase, a rapid increase in interest rates. And I think we're kind of seeing that with stocks on the growth side with the ten-year treasury going from you know 1.4 to 1.7 in a few days and having one side of the market really be impacted, likely from that, but probably other factors as well, as we discussed earlier. The other piece that you and I were talking about, I think, is interesting. So we covered rate hikes and the narrative around there. We covered debt and the unaffordability of housing. I think that's a two-sided argument. One is maintaining a home has never been cheaper, but the other piece is buying a home has never been more expensive. And then one other piece I thought we found was so interesting is what Scott Galloway, who gets ripped on all the time, but he's a professor, business school professor at NYU. He stated that one in every 153 Americans works for amazon which is an unbelievable statistic to me
2: yeah another interesting news event that happened last week was apple crossed three trillion dollars in market cap it's really amazing how these businesses have been integrated in our society i mean i'm sure it's something that you see on a regular basis in your household doug but as it relates to amazon we have packages basically on our front porch like every single day basically any sort of subscription we have either through Amazon or Apple, these businesses are, are part of our lives now. And I, I don't really see, see that getting or going away or getting diminished in any form or fashion.
1: Yeah. And I don't know, I'm not going to comment on the valuation. I, I think there's an argument maybe more so for Apple than for Amazon that that from a valuation perspective, a three trillion dollar market cap or a thirty-five times PE for a company that's not really growing earnings doesn't make a whole lot of sense.
2: Have you seen that the revenue generated by AirPods relative to a lot of the big tech companies? Yeah, that one single product line. Right. Exactly. It's pretty amazing. Like for example, they have there's a chart that looks at AirPods revenue relative to tesla to netflix etc airpods just that one single product line is basically at the same level as tesla so for example airpods in 2020 did 23 billion dollars of revenue netflix the entire company did 25 billion dollars of revenue over that period of time so it's pretty interesting how that's all uh, that, that's all developed a lot of the risk that gets discussed with these particular
1: companies is centered around anti-competitiveness and monopolistic behavior and things like that. I couldn't disagree with that more. I think each one of these companies has made our lives better. I mean, you can make an argument for Facebook as to what are the benefits of social media, but in terms of Apple and Amazon and Google and Facebook, their size and their complete ingrained nature in our lives i don't i don't see that as a as a negative and i don't see that their respective monopolies as as purely anti-competitive i think they've improved our lives in crazy ways and i think they still continue to do so
2: yeah i um i think you some people can make the argument against apples like just in terms of people being always being on their phones and the addictive nature of that but yeah i agree with you i i I, for one, am very much an early adopter of technologies that I think will improve my life. And I have basically all the Apple products that, that one can buy. I like to get the newer ones. And if they slow down for any reason or whatever, then I'm, I move on to the next newest one, just because it is such an important part of our life now. And as, as it relates to the competitiveness and anti-competitiveness of of Apple versus other providers. I think when I when I think of monopolies, I think of like standard oil of California that had price control across the whole oil industry and they were forced to break up as a result. But I see Apple, for example, as a more of a facilitator in a, allowing other businesses to succeed than traditional monopoly that we read about in history books.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I think that Apple's main issue is their, from what I can tell, is their app store and them charging exorbitant fees to developers to have their apps placed in the app store. But, I mean, if you think about what what Apple has provided, what Facebook has provided from the ability for people to set up Facebook shops and businesses, Amazon, you know, we're big proponents of third-party sellers on Amazon, using Amazon's infrastructure. To deliver goods and services to people, there's the other like a you know Microsoft with Azure and the Microsoft operating system and things like that. I, I don't see that as really an issue monopolistic wise because I I think what they all of their product lines are very customer focused and driving down costs for customers and driving up experience. So,
2: so one of the interesting things that it's so we mentioned earlier how today for people like ourselves that have mortgages, et cetera, it's as a percentage of income, it's a lot easier than it was in our parents' generation. The same thing goes for from a parenting perspective because of all these technologies, like for example, I use my Apple iPhone to find a babysitter on various apps. We use it. There's an app in town in New Orleans called Windy that, that essentially allows you to have a babysitter that has a, a .edu email address. And we have babysitters that we find all the time through that service make reservations for restaurants, order our groceries on Instacart. There's just a variety of things that just make it so much easier to live in today's day and age, especially when we're at a really busy phase of life with young kids and everything. It's so much easier because of all of these technologies. Yeah. I want to change a little bit of the
1: direction we're going here and, and talk about really current events and news that is non-market uh, related, but has market Implications, and that's uh, Omicron. We're sitting here today. We've got in office group of eight people, and two of them are out with COVID right now. And so it looks like we're in the thick of things,
2: Omicron wise. What's the latest that you're reading? So, Scott Gottlieb, uh, the former FDA commissioner, has been a pretty good resource from the standpoint of COVID data. And there's two interesting things, really. Number one, he came out with the, the fact that because COVID is airborne, cloth masks are really useless against it, which is interesting. He said that to the extent that you are going to mask, if you want to do anything against COVID, you really need an N95 mask. So that's one piece of uh, information that I found to be pretty useful. Secondly, as it relates specifically to Omicron, it is showing to be significantly more contagious than prior variants to the extent that like the two people that are in the office that have it all vaccinated and boosted, but obviously that hasn't meant anything from the standpoint of them getting, contracting the virus. But from the standpoint of Scott Gottlieb's perspective, in terms of what happened in the, I'm probably mispronouncing this, but the Gauteng region of South Africa, where Omicron first emerged, which I believe is where Johannesburg is, essentially what happened was it was about a month from the beginning of the outbreak to the peak. And then that happened very quickly, obviously, that month period of time. And then it was another month from the peak to the subsequent trough. So who knows where we exist in this this sort of curvature, but I would imagine we're probably nearing peak or past peak here in New Orleans right now in terms of this specific wave. Sure damn hope you're right because I'm looking at our calendar and the first
1: parade is February 12th for Mardi Gras. So we don't have <laughs> another missed year. Yeah. That's a, that's an important thing to the economy here. Right. Not only that, my kids are like, have forgotten about Mardi Gras. Anderson doesn't even, <laughs> doesn't even remember uh, what it was like. So we need to get back to that and and the society needs to get back to
2: normal. Right. Well, I, the, the hope is, is that this particular variant is essentially going to if you haven't been vaccinated, or even if you have been vaccinated, you're going to get this. And what that's going to result in is you have antibodies against the the subsequent variants or waves. And hopefully the idea is that the enough of the population is inoculated, to put it in the words of Aaron Rodgers. He said he was inoculated, but he hadn't been vaccinated, essentially. He just He had been infected. But enough of the population should be inoculated after this particular variant to make the whole COVID situation endemic and just something that we all have to deal with like the flu on a prospective basis. So that's really the hope with this particular wave.
1: I'm quite interested in how there's a lot of shell shock still from 2020. And I'm just very curious as to how society as a whole is going to be able to just move on from this. I think that there are, in terms of fear that it is still out there, It it seems pretty evident to me that Omicron is, if you look at South Africa and you look at the UK, and then you just look at what's occurring in the US so far, that people are getting sick, but not severely ill. And that the death rate for Omicron is much less than the death rate for uh, even the flu uh, for those that are vaccinated. And so I guess my Anxiousness around this particular wave and then in future waves, which are likely going to happen, whether we're vaccinated or not, is how does society move on from from such a a difficult time for a lot of people that especially uh, people that are elderly and anxious about catching this or have been at least.
2: Well, it's my hope, and this goes along with the stock market as well, too, which I feel like over the long time is going to continue to go up. With a, who who knows, right? And the, the stock market, I'm referring to, specifically referring to as the U.S. markets, and I think in the world on the whole as well, too. But I have confidence in America, the Americans' ability to continue to progress and improve and everything. And I hope and I believe that we'll get behind this period. and And I, for one, I th- I feel like I'm the I'm a good example of just the mentality that a lot of people either have right now, or I think we'll eventually have as well too, where I was specifically very cautious from a COVID standpoint up until really about the last three or six months ago, until I've educated myself about the risks and everything related to it. And I've really gotten to back to living mostly a normal life, even through this latest wave, even though I know that I'm putting myself at risk. But then I, then again, I also know that what you said and the data indicates that this particular wave, especially if you're vaccinated like myself, is not so dangerous? Well, I think it's a lot of it's going to come from leadership.
1: And what the CDC just came out and said is that quarantine, if you're exposed or, or have COVID is five days down from 10 in the midst of an Omicron wave. And I think that the signal that the government is sending, which I think is the right signal, is that we need to start working on you know, the next phase of this we just getting back to you know nearly or hundred percent of of what previous life was like. The other piece is that just having an annual vaccine that covers all potential variants which is being developed is another
2: comforter. but I saw that the, speaking of I saw that the I don't know what the acronym is, but it's the defense it's like the Department of Defense's yeah group is developing a vaccine. Uh, it's DARPA, I believe, or DARPA is developing a vaccine for all coronaviruses. Did you see that? I saw a headline on it, but I didn't read it. Right. So, but like a huge percentage of like the common colds that we receive are coronaviruses. So it's it's all like when you look back, and if that if they end up succeeding in that endeavor, that would be amazing because obviously getting the common cold is annoying and and it's deadly to a certain degree for you know for a small subset of the population, and so to the extent that We had went through this difficult period. That would be an awesome positive that came out of it if we could essentially reduce or eliminate significant portion of obviously COVID infections and all the coronaviruses themselves uh, on a prospective basis.
1: Yeah. Well, I think it comes back to, and we talked on a previous podcast episode, but I don't think we recorded it, about how, well, there's two things to this. One is we live in a society now that has been sheltered from really all major risks. And so any increase in risk is a major issue from an anxietal perspective. But the second is the psychological study on the bombing campaign in Great Britain during the Battle of Britain, 1941 or 39, maybe. And the idea that the danger didn't subside, but the way of life uh, proceeded back to a semblance of normal just because that danger became a way of life and, and people were able to block that and continue on. And I think that that's likely what's has occurred over the last several months, even with the Delta wave, which was you know, equally as deadly as alpha and beta, but highly transmissible to this Omicron wave. I think people get to a point where they're just accepting of risks because there's nothing else that they can really do
2: and they'd right. rather li- live their lives than live in fear. Right. Just like the, I read somebody that made the assertion that during the Spanish flu times, it wasn't really a newsworthy event, even though it like killed 3% of the population. There's two reasons for that. There was, it happened during World War I. And the idea was that the government was trying to censor any sort of bad news. But then, secondly, it was not abnormal for people to die from disease and illnesses back then. And so it was really like if COVID would have happened back then. People would have probably just shrugged it off. But to your point, it's, it, it, people are a lot more sensitive or were a lot more sensitive to anything going on. And as a result of this particular wave, I think that's, or this particular epidemic, I think that people are going to be way less intimidated by macro events like this. We're coming up on 30 minutes. And so I want to round it off with what's
1: going on in your life this weekend. This is Thursday, the 6th. So what's, uh, what's going on in
2: New Orleans? Well, we are going to dinner tonight, which is awesome. As it's not, I like to do midweek dinners. It's a nice break, my wife and I, from our normal parenting duties. And then the big thing that's going on this weekend is the Saints are playing the Falcons at in Atlanta. We lost to the Falcons earlier this year. I was at that game. On, it was a wild game. But in, in any event, if we win against the Falcons and if the 49ers lose against the Rams – then we are in the playoffs, which would be a, a pretty awesome testament to Sean Payton, who I I feel like is. it's interesting. We had to come up with, Doug was in a meeting we had earlier this week, and we had to come up with a person that you would most want to work with. If, and if you couldn't think of anybody, you had to name a number of individuals. And if you couldn't think of anybody else to name, You had to to add a a, like a famous person. I think Sean Payton made the list, but uh, because he's so decisive and his ability to thrive under circumstances that aren't in his favor. But I think he's had to go through like how many quarterbacks have we gone through this year? Like four or five five this year, five quarterbacks this year. And if we're able to make the playoffs in spite of that, it's that just I think further cements his legacy as one of the one of the best coaches in the history of the NFL. Agreed. I'll be watching the game. I'm not doing much of anything at home with new baby. Yeah. Doug, tell everybody you're with the, the best money that you can spend from a new parent's perspective. We're big proponents of automated savings, pay yourself first kind of
1: philosophy around 401k plans or brokerage accounts or you know setting up 529 plans for kids. But I will tell you, if, if anybody ever asked me whether they should pause that sort of automated payment to themselves in order to pay a night nurse for a few weeks post baby <laughs> there's absolutely no better investment in the world than having somebody come to your house from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. to take care of your child and so you don't have to get up in the middle of the night so i'm i sound rested it's because i am rested it's because i'm i've put the capital outlay for this month towards uh, towards our night nanny which is
2: pretty awesome yeah <laughs> We have three kids and we figured that out on the third kid and it's I wish we would have figured it out earlier. It's a lot to deal with and dealing with the middle of the night stuff and to have somebody uh, especially for mom and to have somebody to help with that is like a huge deal. So anyway, we we appreciate you guys listening in, share our podcast, we're trying to get this out and we look forward to having you guys join us next week. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Lanyap. This podcast is brought to you by Stokes Family Office and produced by Reverb. If you liked this episode, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Stokes Family Office and Lanyap, visit us at stokesfamilyoffice.com.